Our sermon passage today is from Ephesians again. If you have your Bible, uh, turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 22 to 33. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can find this printed in the bulletin. Uh, Today for Mother's Day, we're going to be focusing on the theme of marriage. Uh, And not necessarily because it's Mother's Day, but it just so happens that this is where we're at. And uh, there may be a few things in here, in fact, that you uh, might be uncomfortable with. Uh, We're going to talk about that, uh, but let me read it to you. This is God's holy and inspired word, and it cannot fail us. It cannot lead us astray. Uh, Please hear his word. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The word of the Lord. Well, what do you do when the Bible says something you don't like? (laughs) Have you ever had that experience? Uh, If you've read the Bible with persistence, or you've come and listened to sermons with persistence, then you no doubt have had that experience. All of us have at different times. Uh, The Bible sometimes says things we don't expect. Sometimes it says things that most people within our society don't agree with. The society that we ourselves have been raised in, and so we've got that same sort of resistance in our own hearts too. And yet the Bible still says it. What do you do? Well, for lack of a better word, and this word appears several times, you submit. Now, this is a great example of what submission means, actually. Submission by definition. It kind of means what it sounds like it means. Uh, Submission means that you take your mission and you put it under the mission of another. Submission. You take your thoughts, you take your desires and your plans and your agenda, and you put it underneath the greater plans and ideas and truths of somebody else who's greater than you, or or who at least has a role in a certain situation that is greater than yours. And of course, when it comes to God and his word, no matter who you are, God is greater than you are. And God's word is much better than your ideas and mine. Uh, trust, Trust us on that. Trust the scripture on that. And this morning, there's going to be a great exercise for all of us to learn how to subject ourselves, learn how to put ourselves underneath 
the voice of God, especially about marriage. That's what this whole sermon's about today. It's about marriage. And if you look at your bulletin, there are three things about marriage that we're going to learn. First of all, Paul tells us about the mystery of marriage. Secondly, he tells us about the order of marriage. And then lastly, he tells us about the hope for marriage. The mystery, the order, and the hope. Y'all ready to talk about it? Let's dive in. First of all, the mystery of marriage. Paul says this in verse 32. It's at the very end of the passage, kind of his summary statement of the whole thing. This mystery is profound, he says. Uh, Literally in Greek, he says, this mystery is mega. This is a mega mysterion, a mega mystery. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about marriage. Marriage is a mega mystery. But it's not a mega mystery just because it's hard to figure out and it's hard to have a good one. Although, in fact, it is hard to have a good one, and it is sometimes quite hard to discern and figure out. Paul is saying it's a mega mystery because of the depths of, of, of meaning that God himself has invested into marriage when he first invented it and when he first created it. There are layers of meaning to marriage that God has put within the marriage relationship that you just can't erase out. That's the mystery he's speaking about. That's why he says in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it, that is the mystery, that is marriage, refers to Christ and to his church. Have you ever seen the Northern Lights or heard of the Northern Lights? I've never seen them. They're a long way away from Florida. And I haven't ventured too far north away from Florida in my lifetime. But I've seen many pictures. I've seen videos. I've even seen those pictures from space of the northern lights, which are beautiful. Uh, Do you know what causes the northern lights? Uh, This is not something that I'm an expert in, granted, but I did look look it up this week. And it was interesting to see that it's caused by solar winds, sort of the offshoots of the solar of the sun, you know, shooting out its rays, literal fire coming out and all the heat that comes from that, entering into, at a certain angle, the Earth's atmosphere. And the reason it happens in the north is because that's the angle that is just right for that solar wind to hit the Earth atmosphere and boom, this explosion of light and color. I mean, the northern lights almost dance across the sky. It's a beautiful thing that God invented there. Well, what Paul is saying, the mystery of marriage is kind of like the northern lights. Marriage is one of those places in life where heaven touches earth. At the right angle. Where the great dramatic story of God, God, the husband of his people, coming into the earth to rescue and win his bride and to deliver his bride into his house. And to take care, care of and, and lead and love sacrificially his bride. That great story interacts with our little stories of man and wife in love together, committing to one another for life, raising our families on the basis of sacrificial self-giving. Heaven and earth meets and boom, Paul says, mega mystery. The explosion of light that can happen. Now, of course, Paul is speaking here about the ideal. He's speaking to us in this passage about God's design. And I think everybody, as we read it, will will come to confess and know and understand that no marriage fully lives up to the mystery. 
But the whole point of this is that as a Christian, even this morning if you're not married, even if you're not married yet, or maybe you'll never get married, some people are called to have a single life for life. And there's nothing, the Bible actually dignifies that calling. Paul, the guy writing this, wasn't married. <laughs> of course, Jesus, and you know, except for being married to his church and to his bride, he was not married on earth. There's a dignity to that. And so whether you're married or unmarried, God, is, God wants us to get further insight into the depths of the mystery by struggling and living through our imperfect marriages. But our imperfect marriages, even in their imperfection, are marked by the great perfection of God's love for his people. And so if you'll notice, even starting there in verse 22, how many times does Paul say about marriage, it is like Christ? It is like Christ to his church, or it is like the church to Christ. I mean, you see that there in verse 22. Uh, wives are to submit their, to their husbands as to the Lord. Right? Um, the church submits to Christ, and so wives are to submit to their husbands in everything, verse 24. In verse 25, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Then it says again, you're to do it just as Christ has loved his church, verse 29. Just the way he does it. That's the, that's the design for marriage. Like Christ is, so we are to be. Like the church is, so we are to be. And then finally, we've already mentioned it, verse 32. The whole mystery of marriage refers to Jesus and the church. Refers to the bigger story of God with his people. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible devoted to this. Song of Songs. Song of Solomon in the Old Testament. Uh, scholars and, and Bible students have always wondered, is that book about marriage and about falling in love and getting married and settling down? Or is it about God and his people? And I think the best answer is yes. Of course, it's about the beauty of marriage and the beauty of being in love and romance and getting together and committing to one another for life. Of course, it's about that because that's what it is on the surface. But I'm sorry, as a Christian, you cannot read that book without thinking about, for example, what God says in Isaiah 54, your maker is your husband. Your maker is your husband. I am gathering you to myself. You have been like a deserted wife, but I am bringing you in never to let you go again. That's the story. That's the mega mystery that Paul wants to get us to. But guess what that means? That means something very countercultural. You ready for it? We cannot define marriage ourselves. We must receive God's definition. Countercultural, right? Reason for that. Marriage is not in the first place about you and me. And it's not about our self-fulfillment. It's not about, first of all, our happiness. You complete me. That's not what it's first all about. What is it about? It is like everything else in all creation about God. God designed marriage in the beginning so that he could display his glory. So that we might learn his ways and become more like him. So that we might raise children who would be in touch with him by being in proximity to our marriages. So that he could restrain in the world the destruction that sin causes by teaching us how to be disciplined in obedience to him in a marriage relationship and covenant. Marriage is about God, not self-fulfillment. And so I think this speaks to people whether they consider themselves on the left or the right. 
This is an equal opportunity offender here. Folks on the left may say, wait, if marriage is all about self-fulfillment, therefore why does marriage have to be just one man and one woman? Certainly, why does it have to be for life? Can't you have it for a season and then move on to a better option? Right? I mean, isn't that what people think? And and we have to hand it to them. If marriage is, in fact, about self-fulfillment, then why not? Then, of course, you know, when you're not fulfilled anymore, find another situation that will fulfill you. Why does marriage have to be just between two people? Why does it have to be between a man and a woman? If it's about self-fulfillment, it really does tear at the threads that create the whole tapestry of what God has designed in marriage. But this also, I think, offends a lot on the right side. Because oftentimes on the right side we say, uh, yes, marriage is one man, one woman for life. God said it in the Bible. That settles it. Stop trying to change it. And yet in our hearts we leave unchanged that basic selfishness that approaches our spouse as if, hey, please me. Make me happy. I want you to know, Paul is not writing a Hallmark card here. And he's not writing a Hallmark movie. Paul is saying positively, it is not about you. The Christian life 101 is learn that you were made to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Not to glorify yourself and seek self-enjoyment forever. And yet when it comes to marriage and romance and those things, man, it's such a powerful feeling that is associated with it. It's such a powerful part of our lives that we almost can't help ourselves from self-indulgence. And yet everything that Paul says here just oozes self-sacrifice, doesn't it? Instead of self-fulfillment, self-sacrifice. Sacrifice for God and his greater purposes, but also sacrifice for my spouse, the one that God and his providence has brought to me and me to them. This morning, what do you think your marriage is about if you're married? If you're not married, what do you think marriage in general is about? If you're seeking marriage, what is it you're looking for? Do you understand that marriage is not just a human idea or a human invention, but a God creation? And that God never creates anything without having a rhyme or reason to it. And God's rhyme and reason is always, always to show us himself. So that we might enter into an even greater marriage. The marriage between his people and his children. That's the first thing, the mystery. It's a mega mystery. Do you all believe that? Marriage is a mega mystery. Because it has layers and layers and layers of meaning that God has invested in it beyond just what you see with your eyes. Now, secondly, there is an order to marriage. Uh, And this is uh, what the whole passage really is about. I mean, from the very beginning to the very end, Paul is saying, here's the husband, here's the wife, here's what the wife is supposed to do, here's what the husband is supposed to do. And I realize that right there is the rub, right? That right there is the thing that's most controversial to us. But think about how this works. Any time, not just in marriage, get marriage out of your mind for a second. Any time you're trying to bring two or more different people together in unity, you always have to make arrangements. 
You always have to set down some kind of order. Okay, think about it. Even something as simple and daily as having family dinner at the table. You're trying to bring together parents and kids. Is that easy? Somebody has got to set the table. Somebody's got to decide before that, what are we even going to eat? And how's it going to get made? Uh, Somebody has got to decide who sits where. Uh, Somebody has to be at the table, you know, kind of setting the tone for how the table goes, especially if you have little kids. You can't let the little kids take over at the dinner table. That that can become pretty wild pretty quick. There's got to be some kind of order. Now imagine uh, having the extended family over for Thanksgiving. How much more arrangement does that take? How much more foresight and order? Imagine having not just extended family, but all your closest friends over. Now imagine putting on a fundraiser banquet for all kinds of strangers. Do you see? The greater the difference between the parties, the more careful arrangement is required to achieve the unity and the peace that's desired. The greater the difference, the more order and the more arrangement has to be determined beforehand in order to ensure peace and unity and harmony. And that is precisely what God has done with the marriage relationship. In fact, in this way, marriage is a perfect picture of his relationship to his people. Right? How different is Christ from us? I mean, how would you measure that gap? What, what ruler would you use to put a measurement on that, right? I mean, there is no ruler big enough. Jesus is God, the holy God, the living God. Yes, he took on flesh and became a human like us, but he never ceased to be God. And so in union with us, he doesn't become us, and we don't become him. We stay different. And so in order for a union to happen between Christ and his church, there has to be a very clear order of the relationship and this passage says it's Christ who is the head and the savior and we are the recipients of his salvation we are the ones that are to submit ourselves to put our mission underneath his mission because he is the head and we are the body and the parts of the body well in an analogous way by way of analogy Paul says God designed marriage to be between two difference Two different kinds of people, man and woman, male and female. And that is not something incidental to marriage. That's not something that we can just dispense with. Uh, Man and woman are not interchangeable, according to the Bible. They're unique, each of them, in, in the way that God has designed them. And God has given and assigned to, to men or to husbands a particular part in the order of marriage, and he's designed to wives another part to the order of the marriage. Neither of them are lesser in dignity than the other. They're just different. And they're arranged differently, and it has to be in some way like that, or else there's confusion. Uh, the Bible says this in Corinthians 14, God is not a God of disorder or confusion. He's a God of peace. Uh, What that means is, where there is not order, there is not peace. Uh, And there Paul was describing specifically the worship of the church. He says, let everything in church be done decently and in order. Because when it's not, there is confusion. When there is confusion, there is always a lack of peace and unity. Well, the same thing is true in the home. Have you ever experienced disunity in the home? Uh, 
I know y'all have. No, nobody's saying amen or yes, but I know you have. I'm just assuming you know that. I know it's Mother's Day, so you probably don't want to say it out loud. But it is so true, isn't it? Well, think about it. How much of that disunity, how much of those things that we understand are wrong with us and need to change in order to have harmony in our marriages and harmony in our homes, how much of that could be solved by simply asking God, God, what role do you want me to play? What, what, what assignment have you given me in my marriage? And how can I take my idea of what this should be and submit it underneath your idea of what this should be? You see, any time difference, two different kinds of people come together to make unity, it requires self-sacrifice on both ends. Both sides got to give up something. And that's exactly what it says there. Uh, wives have to submit to their husbands as in the Lord. In fact, it says in verse 24, they need to submit in everything to their husbands, just like Christ does to the church. That means they have to learn how to follow the lead of their husbands. That's a part of the calling of wives. You say, where does that come from? Well, I mean, Paul says it this way. Man was made first and then woman. Woman was made from the man in Genesis chapter 2. Man was not made for the woman, but woman was made for the man. Uh, the word used in uh, Genesis was woman was made to be a helper suitable to the man. Now, now before you think, well, that sounds demeaning. I want you to consider the word helper, that same word is used to describe the Holy Spirit. Do you think the Holy Spirit took a title on himself that was demeaning? It's, it's an awesome thing to be a helper. An incredible thing. Today we're celebrating all the ways that moms and wives and sisters, all, all of them, is very helpful. In ways that we can't be. Because God made man first and then the woman from the man so that the man would have leadership calling and responsibility and the woman would have a responsibility to be a helper. That requires self-sacrifice on the part of the woman. Yes, it does. But y'all, it also requires some tremendous self-sacrifice on the part of the man. And I want you to hear that. Wives are called to submit to loving husbands, not to ogres. As John Stott says on this passage. And so the husband here is to take Christ as his leader. And how did Christ love his wife? Verse 25. He gave himself up for her. Why? So that he might sanctify her and cleanse her and present her without holy and without blemish, without wrinkle or spot. He treats his church now as if the church is his own body because we are. And y'all know how you treat your own body. When something hurts, you stop it. You protect it. Ooh, that hurts. And you start to Guard yourself from that. Well, the husband is supposed to be like that to the wife. Very much caring about how she feels. Very much caring about what she thinks. Very much open to what she might have to teach. There's so much in this passage that it doesn't specify, and I think for good reason. I mean, every marriage is going to look different in, the, in these regards. If you have in your mind, based on this passage, the Stepford Wives, that old movie... Get it out of your mind. Instead, get in your mind Sarah of the Old Testament. Sarah, who, who it says respected Abraham. In fact, the New Testament says she respected him and called him Lord. 
And yet when you read the story of Sarah, she goes toe-to-toe with Abraham. Especially at one particular moment where she was right and he was wrong. And he learned about God's grace in the matter of Hagar from Sarah, his wife, because she went toe-to-toe. So submission doesn't mean Stepford wife. And leader doesn't mean ogre. Get out of your mind the things that maybe our culture has said this means and say it doesn't mean that. The, the, the details of how this gets worked out in many ways are going to be as various as there are husbands and wives. But the basic principles are laid down in the first creation where God made the man and then formed the woman from the man so that together they might be a harmonious pair in marriage. Let me tell you one more countercultural thing. You ready? Marriage is not about affirmation. It's about formation. Do you see the difference between those two things? We come to marriage often for affirmation. That's why, by the way, our culture is obsessed with the initial stages of marriage. Almost every movie you see about marriage is never about 20 years in, right? It's never about 25 years in. It's always about falling in love, courting, engagement, wedding, honeymoon. That's the ideal. That's what our culture says. That's what marriage is. Because those are the most naturally affirming parts of marriage. And we have convinced ourselves marriage is about affirming me. I enter it so I feel affirmed. And and you enter it so you feel affirmed. This is saying something very different. And this is why the Bible doesn't make a fetish of the first stages of marriage. The Bible presents all of marriage and says that's God's design. Read Song of Solomon because it doesn't just talk about the wedding and the honeymoon. It talks about years later. It talks about the long haul of love enduring over time. Why? Because what we enter marriage for is to be formed into people who are like Christ's. In self-giving love and sacrifice. To respect someone else means you got to sacrifice yourself. To love someone else, this saying, means you have to sacrifice yourself. And sacrifice never is, is never learned easily. And so God puts two very different people together and weds them together in holy matrimony for life so that in that workshop, they might be formed into greater and greater likeness to Christ's character. Marriage is a forge. Family, in fact, is a forge, not just a party to celebrate its various members. A forge is hot. It's where you melt down metal and makes it's hot. When you work around a forge, you sweat. Sometimes you even get burned. Imagine being the metal inside the forge. You're melted down to seemingly nothing to be remade into something else that you never imagined that you would be before. And if you got that picture, you got, you got an understanding of what God is after in your marriage and mine. And so this morning, just think about this simple thing. How is your marriage teaching you ways you need to change? Does it ever? Have you quit listening to that? Maybe a long time ago, you quit considering how God is trying to use your spouse and your marriage to change you. Well, this morning, think about it again. Resurrect that old thought. And understand that often sacrificial love and sacrificial respect of the other 
are the very ingredients and building blocks to progress in the change of your heart. If you delete those things out and you refuse to give those things, you probably won't change. You probably won't become what God is calling you to become in your marriage with your spouse. The order of marriage. Submission and love. Respect and love. They're both two sides of the same coin. Both of them are equally sacrificial and equally painful, but both of them can equally shape you into a better person than you were when you entered it. You can say this about a lot of things in life. Entering it will either make you a far worse person than you were before or a far better person than you were before. I think most things in life are like that. And as Christians, we have a hope. We have a hope that God's Holy Spirit might actually be working us to make us better than we would have been had we not been married to the person that God has given us. John Calvin says this, God requires of human beings mutual subjection, and yet there is nothing more irksome to the mind of man than that. And so, this is, what, this is the rest of Calvin's quote, so he directs us to the fear of Christ to the love of Christ, to the respect and even submission as a human being of Christ to his Father, so that he can give us not just a calling, but hope to fulfill that calling. And so let's go to the third thing today, the hope of marriage. This whole passage just brims, I think, with hopefulness, especially there in verses 31 to 33. I want you to follow Paul's logic. In 31, he says, he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, which is where marriage was first invented. And he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That is a description of what God has intended marriage to be down through the generations. The man leaving and cleaving, and the two who are different becoming one by God's mysterious work to reflect the work of Christ. Paul then says in verse 32, I'm telling you, the mystery of this is deep, it's profound, it's mega. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church, but verse 33, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Marriage is a mystery about God, and yet you are daily called to live a certain way in reflection of that. How do you do it? I am saying, he says, that it refers to Christ and the church. Literally, the way he puts it is, I am saying that what this is all about, what marriage is all about, is being into Christ. That's the language he uses. It's moving further and further into Christ. The hope for marriage, the only hope for marriage, I think, especially a godly marriage, is that you would have a good and healthy marriage with Christ, the man and the woman. Before and as the foundation of the relationship that you have together. Going deeper into Christ is the way that you go deeper into self-sacrifice for each other. You say, well, how do you go deeper into Christ? Well, think about it this way. If our marriage, and I think you'll agree, our marriage is meant to be a mirror reflecting the greater marriage of God and his people. Well, what does a mirror have to do to reflect something? It's got to point at it. It's got to face it. In fact, if it's facing anything else, 
Is it going to reflect the thing that it's supposed to reflect? No. If it's face down on the ground, is it going to reflect anything at all? No. And so the way you go deeper into Christ as husband and as wife separately and together so that you can love one another like this and grow in that is by cultivating in your life the practice of pointing yourself at Jesus, pointing yourself at what he has done for you as your greater husband, as the greater husband of the church. Notice the very words that he uses there in verse 31 describe step by step what Jesus did in the gospel. The man shall leave. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who is perfectly equal with the Father, left his Father and came to this dusty, stinky, sin-soaked world. He took on the form of a servant so that as a human being, though he didn't, have to submit to God in eternity because he's equal with God, he's equal with the Father, yet as a man on earth, he submitted in every way. He respected in every way the will of his Father. And by the way, kids, it also says in Luke's Gospel, Jesus, the Son of God, submitted to his mama and his dad in the home. The Son of God submitted. He left to submit. Now, why did he do that? So that he might hold fast. To his wife. Jesus came into the world to hold fast to you. On the cross, when his hands were nailed open, it was so that those hands might have a grip on you that would never ever get loosened. Jesus on the cross was taking his wedding vows. Wedding vows that he never ever intends to break. And he never has broken them. And he proved it in the act that he performed in taking those vows. He was killed. That didn't happen at any of our weddings. We're at the altar to prove our vows. We had to die. And yet Jesus at the great altar died to prove his commitment to his people. And then the last step there, it says, the two shall become one flesh. And that's exactly what Jesus does in the gospel. This morning, that's what he offers you. You may not be a Christian. You may not be sure what you believe. Maybe you think you're a Christian, but you're just not sure. This is what Jesus offers. Nothing less than this. That you, who are so different than the Holy God, might actually become one with the Holy God through his grace through his vows on the cross, through his resurrection and the gift of his Holy Spirit. Listen, if you in your life are aimed at that like a mirror turned to the sun, then it can't help but that something of the aroma and the the way of Christ with you will spill over into your ways with your wife, into your ways with your husband. It won't be perfect. This sermon today is not meant to give anyone more Uh, more clubs to beat their spouse over the head with at home. I'm not trying to do that. No marriage is perfect, but here's what it is. We're both together in a journey to become more like Christ as we point ourselves and our children like a mirror to Jesus to see how he left everything behind for us, how he clung to us on the cross, and how, yes, even yes, he can make us, even us, one with himself. Now, I think, y'all, that makes submission sound different. 
to me it does, that makes respect sound a whole lot different. That makes love and dying for your spouse, which honestly on the surface doesn't sound very fun, it makes it sound a whole lot more meaningful, joyful, and I'll even use the word exciting to get the follow in the footsteps of our maker who is our forever husband. 